You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 4. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Let's take a look at the book, Hebrews chapter 1. Let me put it to you uh, this way. If you were the author of Hebrews, how would you begin? If you were writing to a group of friends who were persecuted and thinking about leaving the faith, what would you say first? Especially if they were even wondering about the power of God and the supremacy of Christ. What would you say first? The genius of the book of Hebrews is that it does not begin by addressing the problem, but it bypasses the problem and instead addresses the solution. The genius is that he doesn't say, now, folks, you shouldn't bend, you shouldn't quiver, you shouldn't be frightened. He says, if you would just get a good look at Jesus, the temptation to abandon him would would wither away. If you understood who he was and all that he did, you would be able to bear up under persecution like never before. He doesn't start with a problem. He starts with a solution. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. I want to read uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 with you just for a moment. In the past, the book begins, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Literally, it's actually by son, by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided for purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, I've read that in an odd way, without pauses, as much as I could. Because in the original Greek, that's all one sentence. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, is all one sentence. It is all one first great blast on the trumpet of the supremacy of Christ. He starts right, it's almost like he takes a deep breath and he just launches in. And starts to say what he has to say. The first thing that he has to say is that Jesus is the final and supreme revelation of God. Notice carefully uh, the parallel between verses 1 and 2. I have it in your notes there. uh, The way in which this is described. Now, once you see, you can enter in in with me here. Tell me what you think we want to make of this. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Again, the original language stresses actually, in various ways, in many ways, in many times, God spoke to the fathers 
long ago by the prophets. But now, God spoke to us in these last days by, by Son, by the Son. Now, what does that little comparison imply? In the past, through the prophets, many times and in various ways. What are some of the ways God used to speak to the people in the past? What did he use? Okay, he used the law. Very good. What else did he use? Okay, he used, he used the law first. Burning bush, for example. What's, what's the burning bush? That's a theophany, isn't it? Right? You know what a theophany is? It's, it's God appearing in some form or other. And then I have uh, somebody from the front row saying uh, he spoke in visions. Visions occur when you're awake. He also did something else. He spoke very good. He spoke by dreams. How else? Okay, very good. He used angels. What else? Okay, very good. He used prophets. When we say law, we may think of Moses. Moses actually, the law of Moses, you know, is sort of dictation from God, right? The, you know, Lord occasionally says to his prophets, go write this down, right? Sometimes the prophets seem to be, uh, you know, working with a lot of freedom, and other times God is dictating certain words as the words of the law were dictated to Moses, right? Well, there are some others, but that's a kind of list. There's also Proverbs, right? And songs and poems, riddles, historical events, right? All kinds of means God uses. And how long did that go on in the Old Testament? Yeah, maybe 4,000 years? You know, well, anyway, from Abraham to today, right? So, say, from the birth of Abraham... First speaking. Okay. And he spoke to Adam. That's another one. Just talking to people face to face or with walking with Enoch. Right? So these went on for a long time. Now, what does it imply if you, if you have to use many different means to communicate for a long period of time? Well, among other things, it implies. What does it imply? It wasn't a final message. If you have to keep talking and talking and talking and keep on adding and adding and adding, it implies maybe people weren't listening very well or that the whole truth wasn't out, right? But now, he says, compared to the Old Testament, which had a, an excellent revelation, but not a complete revelation, but now God has spoken to us in these last days by the Son, which implies that this is the last, the final, the full speech. There's nothing more to be added. It is now complete. He has now spoken to us by the Son. And who is the Son? Uh, for your reflection assignment, I asked you to look at, at Hebrews chapter uh, 1 and 2 and see what you could see about Jesus as, uh, as he is described by, by the book. See if I can get this to go down. I can't. Get a little bit of it down. Tell me some things. You did a reflection paper for today, right? What did you learn from Hebrews 1, 1, and 2? What are some of the descriptions of Christ in this, in this passage of the Bible? Okay. Jesus is the exact representation of... Okay. The exact representation of God's being. What else? Okay. He created all things. What else? Uh, let's do hands. How about that? Yes. 
Okay, he is the heir of all things. While we're on all things, there's one more at least. Okay, he's okay, he's higher than the angels. Put that up here. Put it up high. Higher than the angels. What else? Yes. Okay, in this of all schema, he is the sustainer of all things. He bears all things by his powerful word. He upholds the creation. What else? Okay, he's exact representation, and he is the radiance of God's glory. This, I want to put these two together and say these answer a basic question that people, many people ask. The question is, what is God like? What's the answer to that question? If you're just talking to a very naive beginner, what's God's like? What's the answer? He's like Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels. Which does not, incidentally, mean God is always you know, meek and mild and kind and sweet. He was also able to call people whitewashed tombs and sons of the devil and, and various other things and give the sternest judgment and call to righteousness, but also tender and compassionate and willing to associate with all. So uh, he is uh, the presence of God on earth. What else? Yes. He is the Son. Very good. He's the Son of God. Yes? Okay, he is, he's the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man, isn't he? He is divine. He is human. In these first three verses, there, you know what the big three offices are in the Old Testament? What are they? Prophet, priest, and king. Are these are the big three offices here in these verses? Is he a prophet? Okay, he spoke, and he is the final word of God. So he's, he's called in the pages of the Bible, not here. He's called the prophet, the great prophet, and so forth. And we know it because he spoke. Is he a priest? Okay, he provided purification for sin, so he's a priest. Is he king? He is heir of all things. He is creator of all things. Okay, somebody else says he sits at the right hand of God. So you see how much, I didn't even list so we could put down prophet, priest, and king here as well. You see, and I will tell you candidly, that we're really not even done with what's in these, even in these first few verses. There's, there is more to be said. But he is filled with an urgency to present the person of Christ. That is his goal at the beginning of the book. It's almost as though he says, the thing that I need you to get most clear is who Jesus is in himself. And yet, he is also up to something else. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 have a comparison in them, right? What's the comparison? What's Jesus compared to? Well, he's compared, okay, compared to priests, yes? Okay, for, sorry, go ahead. Okay, the clearest, most prominent sort of can't miss, I'll say, or I guess you can miss it, because, you know, whenever somebody says you can't miss it, then, of course, that means watch out when somebody's giving you directions. But one that's maybe most obvious is that Jesus is compared to prior revelations. He's compared to the prophets. He speaks more clearly, more finally than the prophets do. So there's a lot on Jesus in himself, but there's also a comparison going on. The comparison is... is Evident in the first part of the sentence. Remember I said verses 1 to 4 are all one sentence? 
Now, if you just go through this again, I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you the way it actually uh, goes very, very literally. I want you to notice how this verse, this sorry, this sentence could easily end at the end of verse 3. Just listen one more time. God, many ways, in many ways, many diverse ways long ago, having spoken to the fathers by the prophets, in these last days spoke to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, who, being the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being, and bearing or sustaining all things by his powerful word, and having made purification for sin, sat down by the right hand of the majesty on high. See how easy it would be for it to end right there? But it keeps on going. Having made purifications, he sat down, being so much greater than the angels, inasmuch as he inherited a name more excellent than theirs, period. There's the period in the original. Then he says, for to whom of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I begotten you, and so forth. Now, when I see something like this, I want to ask the question, why? Why did he not stop where it would have been so strategic and so rich to stop? Why didn't he just stop right there when he said, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, period? That would have been so beautiful. But instead he goes off into angels in the same sentence. And that, that bothers me. And I wonder why he did that, and so I have to look for an answer. The truth is it doesn't bother me, but it, 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 it tickles me, I guess. It piques my curiosity. And I think that what he's doing is this. He is starting to, sh to work on this theme that he has, that whatever you use to compare to Jesus, Jesus is always greater. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there is one comparison after another. The first comparison is to the prophets, chapter 1, 1 to 3. But you could miss it if he stopped at the end of verse 3. But to make it, shall we say, more clear, more in your face, that he's interested in, in making comparisons, this first great sentence both opens and closes with comparisons. Opens with a comparison to angels, uh, sorry, to prophets, closes with a comparison to angels. Now, I'd like to look through this comparison to angels with you, just not reading the whole thing, but kind of racing through it with you and see what he is all about. The comparison has four parts to it. The first part is that Jesus is appointed as a royal heir, the heir of all things, the Son of God. Sorry. Let me go back to something else first. Um, Jesus is the royal heir of all things, and as such, he has, he has received a more excellent name than the angels. His name is Son. Their name is Angel. Do you know what the word angel means? Okay, the word angel means messenger. So Jesus is Son. They're messengers. Comparison number one. Comparison, that's in verses four and five. Comparison number two. Jesus has greater dignity. Look at verse six. Jesus receives worship, but they give it. Let all God's angels worship him. Jesus receives, they render worship. He has a greater status. He reigns forever. He never changes. But verses 7 and 9, they are his servants. Verse 7, they're flames of fire. And they serve God in that function. 
Then finally, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. He is the creator and the enthroned ruler of all. And they are, verses 10 to 14, ministering spirits, serving not only Jesus, but serving those who inherit salvation, verse 14. So he's interested in showing Jesus' supremacy. He's repeating the grandeur of Jesus. He says over and over, he says both in both segments, 1 to 4 and 5 to 13, that Jesus is the royal son, that he's the mediator of creation, that he has eternal glory, that he's exalted at God's right hand. And as he repeats all those excellencies of Jesus, he says the angels don't quite have that. They're important, but they're, they're created. They're ministers. They're servants. They're great servants. But they're just servants. Jesus is the greatest of them all. We might ask why there's this interest in angels. Do you know why there's the interest in angels? Why is there an interest in angels? That's exactly right. <clears throat> That's exactly right. Uh, one reason to repeat uh, why there's an interest in angels is because angels were viewed as God's greatest servants, specifically. It was held at the time, I think Elaine mentions this actually in your readings, it was held at the time that the angels were with God on Mount Sinai with the myriads of his holy ones, Deuteronomy says, and angels were with him at his right hand. That's the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 23, 33. Rather. And so they thought angels were the intermediaries. There was also um, an interest sort of, in the air at the time, it's hard to say how much was where, but in demigods, have you studied any Greek, ancient Greek culture? You know, the idea was that they're the gods, and then they're the, well, you know, demigods. I mean, some of you have seen, you know, or read the mythology, and uh, maybe seen movies that have that sort of thing in it, or read books. But the idea was there are, there are supreme gods, and then there are lower gods. And from these gods, yet other gods, emanations come. There was an interest in a chain of being. And it was held that there was God and there was mankind. And there were maybe quite a few ranks of angels. So a lot of speculation about that in some philosophy of the time. It was also held in the intertestamental period. It's between the writing of Malachi and the writing of the Gospels. By many Jewish people that if you were really good as a man or as a woman, when you died, you got to become an angel. So that idea did not come from it's a wonderful life, okay? That's been around for a long time, and it was borrowed from beliefs in that day. So Jesus is, is shown to be superior to those great beings in which they had a lot of interest at that time. But that's not the only thing that's going on in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, as he describes uh, the greatness of Christ. There's also the theme that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So we've got a third thing happening here. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He is also the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. Now, I, I alluded earlier to the idea that he knew these, that this is a man, the author, whoever he was, who knew the Old Testament well. If you have a, mar a marginal reference Bible, you see that these quotations come from different places. Do you see that? For example, the first one, chapter five, 1, verse 5, You are my son today, I have become your father. You know where that comes from? Psalm 2. Psalm 2. 
And then I will be his father and he will be my son. Where does that come from? That comes from 2 Samuel 7. You, have your, you, can, just, you can look at your margins and, and uh, cheat that way if you want to. And then it says, um, let all God's angels worship him. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 32. And then we have a quotation from Psalm 104 and from Psalm 45. So he's coming all through the Old Testament, gathering verses here and there, saying Jesus is the one who fulfills all these things. Uh, some of them were not originally addressed to the Messiah or the promised one to come. I want to give you one solid instance of this. The one that's the longest is in verse 8 and 9. You see it? says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It comes from Psalm 45, and I want you to turn to Psalm 45 with me and get a feel for what Hebrews is doing. Now, he does this a number of times. We're just looking at one instance of what Hebrews does. Psalm 45. Psalm 45 begins this way. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. As I recite my verses for the king... My pen is this, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Okay, who's he writing for? He's writing for the king. And it appears, it certainly appears, that the occasion for which he wrote was a royal wedding. If you look down in verse 10 and 11 and 14, you can see this. Listen, O daughter, uh, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. That's the kind of thing you might say to someone who's about to marry, in general, but especially marry the king. And then uh, verse 13, All glorious is the princess within her chamber, her gown is interwoven with gold, and so forth. And then in verse 16, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory throughout all generations. So a wish for progeny, for a fruitful marriage. So it, it really appears to be, a wedding psalm. It's a royal psalm. It's a class of psalms for the kings of Israel. And it's a royal psalm written for him on the occasion of his wedding day. Now, that's what it started out as. But that's not all. He says, my tongue is stirred. My heart is stirred. My tongue is going to write skillfully. You are the most excellent of men. Verse 2. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty, and your majesty ride forth victoriously. Very fitting for a king, isn't it? You go forward in battle successfully. In behalf of truth, not just in war, but also fighting for the truth. In behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness, let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Again, it's Military, but also spiritual. It's pierced their hearts of your enemies. Let, your, let the nations fall beneath your feet. But then it gets strange. Your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, what did he just call the king? He just called the king God. Now, you can put a little gloss on that and say, well, the king was a representative of God on earth. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, your king represents God. He said, or your throne represents God. He said, your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever. Now, notice what happens in verse 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, 
has set you above your companions. Now he's saying the king is God, but he has a God. Now I want to tell you there's no king in the Old Testament that that describes. And the author of Hebrews has recognized under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and perhaps with a friend of his fellow Christians in the apostolic community who were reading the Old Testament together the way Jesus taught them to do. You remember when Jesus was instructing his disciples at the end, he said, listen, all that the prophets and the Psalms have written speaks of me. I had to do what they all said. So he told them to go, to go look for references to himself in the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews has found one. What he's found is a, a psalm that is about a king, but the more you read, if you read carefully, you realize it really can't be about a king. There is no king that this describes. This is really about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is the true king whose throne is the throne of God. Your throne, O God, will last forever, describes Jesus. And even verse 7 describes him. God, your God. Jesus is God, and he has a God. God the Father is, shall we say, the God of Jesus. And the whole thing is, uh, this is not my phrase, um, is described by a good a commentator in the Psalms as, as one of those times when the language of the psalmist bursts the banks of propriety. You've seen a river break out of its banks. You just, you just want to tell it all, but language fails. He's talking about a king, but all of a sudden he's carried away by God to realize that there is a king greater than any king. That king is Jesus. That's what's happening. A simple illustration of it is when you watch a little kid. You have little kids. How many of you have children? Okay. If you have children and you're either they are little or if you remember them being little, do you remember when your kids were around two or three years old or maybe even one and a half, depending on when these things happen, and you, you tell them you know, how much you love them, I love you so much, and you give them a hug and you give them a squeeze, and then you say, do you, and then they say, I love you too, Mommy, Daddy. I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy. I love you this much. And they hold out their hands wider. Sometimes you can play with your kids and say, now, how much do you love me? Do you love me this much? Do I love you this much? No. No, we love each other this much. And they hold their arms out like that. And then sometimes they look at their arms, you know, at a certain point when awareness gets in there. They look at their arms, and they realize their wingspan is about 28 inches. And that's not enough. See, they, I love you this much. And they're, you know how little kids, their arms don't go out very far. They're all chest or something. And uh, they say, I love you this much. And their arms are just going like this. And they say, so then they start to go like this. I love you this much. You ever see them bend over backwards and stuff like that? If you actually measured what's happening when they're going like this, their wingspan is decreasing. Right? But what they're trying to do is they're saying, I, just, I can't go far enough. See, that's what's happening here. He's saying the language does not, language explodes. The language of God's king there's no king. He wants to praise God's king, but he realizes, no, what he really has to do is praise God. He doesn't, he's, almost, he's carried away, as First Peter says. And Hebrews recognize that these moments of being carried away, and there are actually a fair number of them in the Old Testament, are actually pointers to Christ. So Hebrews is, is setting us up in these three ways. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. And he is 
greater than the word of the Old Testament. The word of the Old Testament, when it, when it blew up in ecstasy, when it exploded with joy, then it was talking about Jesus. There was no king that ever fulfilled this. It had to be Jesus. We're looking at uh, the way in which the book of Hebrews starts off, we're looking at the genius of Hebrews, that although it is written to counteract uh, Christians vacillating under persecution, he starts off with this first blast of Christology. Christology in itself, describing some of the traits of Christ, also his superiority to prophets, to angels, and to the revelation of the Old Testament. Before we move to the first bit of application in the book, let me make simply one observation, a question some of you may have if you are uh, working with non-Christians or with heretics or people in cults. Verse 5 of Hebrews 1 is one that is apt to be misused. It says, you are my son, today I have become your father. And you may get some cults that want to make use of that verse. But let me tell you, just I'll give you another freebie here today. I'll give you a tiny little Latin lesson. Here's another freebie. Uh, if you want to know how to handle cults, you don't really need to handle cults by learning about them. All cults go wrong in three areas. Number one, they always go wrong in Christology. Every major cult that you will encounter will have a defective doctrine of Christ. Almost always, they will deny that Jesus is fully God. There are a few other errors, but that is by far the most common error. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth would make that mistake. They're always going to be wrong on soteriology, doctrine of salvation. Every religion in the world except Christianity is ultimately a religion in which you're saved by works. The works may be your good deeds, more good deeds than bad deeds, maybe by enlightenment, by gaining knowledge, by going to a guru. But you have to do something. Christianity is the only religion in which the only contribution you make to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There is nothing you can do in Christianity. That's so radically contrary to to human nature because we all want to do something that every cult will go wrong there. And every cult will also go wrong in the area of authority. They will always have another authority beyond the Bible. By cult, I mean a Christian cult now. We'll always have something else, the Book of Mormon or the sayings of Joseph Smith or, you know, those are the most common, but, but some other oracle, some spokesman from the later days. Now, what happens is that then that later oracle, because it's last, tends to trump the earlier revelation, so that later revelation gets more and more light. So here's one that some would seize upon. Today, I become your father. What does that mean? It seems to imply that, that maybe Jesus was not always uh, the son of God. You are my son. Today, I become your father. I think the way we need to take it, there are two options here, actually. One is to say that it's referring to the quote-unquote day within eternity when the Father was begotten by the Son. But I I think that's one option that decent Christian good theologians say, but I don't think that's actually correct. I think better it is to say that there was a day 
when the deity of Christ became manifest or public to the world. And that was the day, and even there to say a day isn't exactly right, but that was the day of his resurrection together with his exaltation, his ascension. Now, why do I say that? Well, because there are a couple places in the New Testament that show what this today means. You could turn, if you'd like, to Romans chapter 1 with me. Verse 4 says, let me just go back a little bit and get the context a tiny bit. Uh, Paul says, this is the gospel he, um, he promised beforehand. Verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You hear that? He was declared with power. It's not as though nobody ever heard it before. They did. But it was proven. It was powerfully declared on the day when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Acts chapter 13 has something very similar. Acts 13, we could read verses 32 and 33. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. Now, what did he fulfill? What was fulfilled was the second psalm. You are my son, today I become your father. Now, see, again, what we have here is... Hebrews and, and also uh, Paul's sermon in Acts saying Psalm 2 about a king becoming the son of God really doesn't apply to a king. The final application is to Christ who was declared with power to be the son of God on a particular day, the day of his resurrection. That's the real fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 7. Well, I said that we would get into the application, first application section of Hebrews shortly, and indeed here we are. Uh, he begins to make a glancing reference to their situation back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 at the end. At the end he says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There it is. Did you hear it? Did you hear the reference to their problems? There will be a day when their enemies will be a footstool for them. That is to say, they'll be subordinated to them. Furthermore, in their struggle, verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, what is an angel? An angel is a messenger. Where do, where do angels stand in the ranks of, of God's creation? Pretty high, pretty low. Pretty high. How high? Real high. There was actually a debate, you know, are angels above men or men above angels? I'll tell you, I think if we saw Gabriel, we'd be inclined to say Gabriel's above us. That's just a hunch I have. In the Bible, when people meet a Gabriel, they do things like fall down and worship and quiver and think they're going to die. And, you know, I've met some impressive people in my life, but I never fell down and worshipped and thought I was going to die when I met any of them. So I think that uh, angels are very high, but here's what it says. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us. Powerful beings are on our side. And our adversaries will become a footstool for the feet of Christ, verse 13 says. But if they submit to Christ, and Christ is our king, then they'll submit to us. Well, that's the first bit of encouragement and the first bit of exhortation. 
But then he goes a little bit further in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore. You see what he's doing? He's saying, okay, I've given you this theology now for <clears throat> the first uh, chapter. Now, you have to pay attention to what we have heard so we don't drift away. Now, there it is. He's concerned about them drifting away. Now, this little word drift could be used in antiquity of things slipping also. Um, if a ring would fall off your finger when you weren't paying attention, you know, it's a little bit too big and it's cold outside and you're playing volleyball or something and you, you, know, you jump up and your ring goes flying off your finger. That actually happened to me once. When I was a newlywed, I got a little chunk of ring taken out so it wouldn't happen again. And it would also be used of, of a boat losing its anchor. Been out at sea. I told you, I think, last time I was just on a mission trip. And on that mission trip, at one point, we, we were looking. I'm not kidding. We were looking for a sunken boat because lots of interesting fish hang around sunken boats. And so we, we dropped anchor. But in this particular place... The next stop, when the current was going that way, the next stop was Liberia. So, you know, before we stop and get out of the boat, we try to make real sure we set our anchor. Because even if the boat only goes two and a half miles an hour, if you can't catch the boat, you're in a lot of trouble. So, you want to make sure the anchor is set. This idea of slipping away was used of anchors lose, uh, slipping out of a boat. And the image is, in fact, exactly apt for their situation. Because the problem is not that they're going to turn to full apostasy. In fact, it is very rare for a Christian to turn from fidelity to apostasy in a day. Extremely rare. What happens is you start to go to church a little less, read the Bible a little less, pray a little less. Associate with some wrong, you know, you associate with, it's great to associate with sinners, okay? Everybody should have some non-Christian friends. But there's different ways to associate with those non-Christian friends. And so he's afraid that they'll slip away. That's what's been happening to them. They haven't deliberately scorned the revelation of God. They've slipped away. That's what he says. Pay attention so you don't drift away or slip away. I'll use another example of the same thing. You ever been in, in a car, in your car, uh, and you maybe parked your car in your garage, and you noted, noticed that the, uh, that the tools on the wall of your garage were moving? Or the mower? Maybe the freezer? You know? Do you ever notice that? And you say, why is, why is the mower moving? What's happening? You didn't set the brake on your car, right? You ever see somebody run after a car? In a parking lot at the mall? How many of you have seen that? I've seen it. How many of you have done it? Okay. Even more people have done it. They used it. I want to tell you, people saw you, but you're just hoping they didn't. So, you know, and, and you know that it started at about 140th of a mile an hour, right? But a, a little creep, a little drift picks up speed, and the result is disaster. And that's what we have here. He says, drift can kill now, he also teaches them or warns them about this as well. Notice how he reasons with them. He says, now, listen, 
the message, verse 2 of chapter 2, spoken by angels was binding, wasn't it? That's a reference to the Old Testament Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant. And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. You know all those, all the punishments stipulated in the Mosaic Law for violating the law of the covenant of God. Well, you know, if that's the way it was in the old covenant, he says, how will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation that we have was announced not by angels, but by the Lord. And beyond that, it was attested to us by signs and wonders and miracles. Do you think you can escape if you neglect, if you slip away from that, even if it starts small? It's a great salvation. And in fact, there's even a little bit of a hint here in this verse uh, that although most of the time it's by accident, there's also another word he uses here. He says, if the message spoken by angels is binding in every violation, that word violation is actually the, translated usually transgression. For the handful of you who know Greek, the word is parabasis, and the idea is that you're stepping across a line. Okay, There's different kinds of sin, right? There's sins of omission and commission, but there is a sin in which you say, there's the line, I know it's wrong, I know it's a sin, and you go ahead and you step across it anyway. So there, there are some sins that are drifting sins. There are other sins that are transgressions. He's beginning to hint that maybe some of them are also transgressing, not just slipping. There is a question I'd like to just pause to consider with you. How is it that people drift away? I think that's a very important question. How do people drift? It's not hard to see how people drifted back then because chapter 5 tells us how. They drifted away by not practicing what they knew. And they also perhaps were not associating with each other as much as they should have. When I ask the question, what can cause Christians today to drift away, there are very many answers. Uh, one answer is simply getting caught up in work. Getting ahead, consumerism, success, and all that sort of thing. Worldly entertainment, falling into debt can cause you to slip away. Uh, pain that you don't know how to interpret can cause you to slip away. Uh, getting caught up with, um, with your own entertainments, but, uh, you know, sports or TV or movies or magazines. They don't have to be overtly corrupt to take us away. But... If you try to ask what do, they, what do those things have in common, what they have in common is accommodation to our culture. The reason why it's easy to accommodate to our culture and slip away in that manner is because that our culture has experienced profound Christian influences historically. Our culture, you know, it's not like some countries where you would go and there would be idols right there on the street corner. Okay? There are places in the world, in China, Tibet, and India, and various places, Indonesia, where you will see idols just right there. There are no idols literally right there in front of your eyes in America. And so because you know, so many people are nice and we share so much in common with Christianity, there's a church in every corner, we lose our sense of the distance between Christianity and our culture, there is materialism and consumerism. And I want to tell you, it is so easy for that to infect us. And here's why. Because we know that God created all things. And he created them for our good, for our enjoyment. And everything is consecrated. I'm quoting the Bible now. Everything is good if it is consecrated by, by the word of God and by prayer. 
And we know God loves to give blessings to his children. And so we say, well, God is just giving me things. And it doesn't seem very dangerous because we thank God for it. And I will tell you, beyond that, it can, it can really creep into the church. Over the years, uh, my wife and I generally tended to attend churches that were anywhere from small to very small. I mean, I've spent... We were suckers for lost causes, is basically what it boils down to. Some, you know, some dying group would say to us, we're dying if you will come and play the piano to my wife, and if you'll come teach or preach or something or other, help us out. We're just dying. You'll make the difference. We were just suckers enough to believe that. And a couple of times it actually worked for the good, and, and we spent a lot of time in small and weak churches. But a couple of years ago we decided for the sake of our kids, we'd like to get them in a good, healthy, solid church you know that they could experience the breadth of ministries and so forth not that the church we were in before him was bad at all but it was just smaller and farther away from home but it's interesting you know here in a uh, here in st louis there are a lot of big churches and those who are going to watch this on video are going to tend to be in big cities with big healthy churches and in those churches it's interesting to me to listen to the influences of consumerism. And I, I'm not pointing the finger at others. I mean, I, I hear this myself. Why do you choose your church? Well, because it's a full-service church. You know, it's got a bang-up choir. And it's got a terrific youth ministry. And it's got specialized ministries for divorced people and alcoholics and, and for, you know, people recovering from this and widows. And, and uh, you know, it's got, it's got it all. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm in my church, and I love my church, one of the reasons why I'm in it is because it's big enough to have a fabulous youth ministry, which is what I wanted for my kids. And, and in one sense, that's good, but it can become consumerist. I even pick my church for the services it renders to me, right? And then self-development. You know, so much a part of our culture to experience new things. And polls have been done that show how Christians buy in to the self-development, self-actualization, you know, and Christians will say it's good to have new experiences and exciting experiences. And in one way it's true. I mean, after all, as Christians, we want to grow. We want to grow in wisdom and maturity and knowledge. And so that sounds like self-development. But self-development can also be deeply egotistical and lose the idea that my self-development may be learning how to suffer for the Lord. And, that, you know, what I want or what I get or how I develop is a worthwhile question, but maybe a tertiary question, not even a secondary question. Well, that's, that's the way I think in the, in, the, in the blessed, prosperous land in many ways we live in, we can become inured to the gap between the biblical Christianity and our culture may drift away. We lose our sense of the antithesis, of the radical difference at root between our culture, which is finally absolutely anthropocentric, as opposed to the Christian faith, which is finally absolutely theocentric, Christocentric. That was my sermon.